Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Lisa Van Boxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe. Today we're doing Rothschild's fiddle or Rothschild's violin. There's going to be a lot of fun uh, translation differences for each of us today by Anton Chekhov. Lise is going to give us a brief summary of the reading and start us off with an opening question. And maybe before I even give the brief summary, Jeff, this is one of the great lines in literature, opening lines, and we kind of like your translation, so maybe you could read it for us. Okay, here it comes. The opening line from Rothschild's Violin. The town was small, more wretched still than a village, and it was filled almost entirely with old folk, who died so seldom that it was a crying shame. Okay, so after that opening line, we get introduced to the main character, whose name is Yakov Ivanov, otherwise known as Bronze, as we'll shortly find out. And he's a coffin maker. We get introduced to that immediately, hence the opening line that's vexatious that not enough people die because business depends on it. Um, At least that, maybe more than that as well. Uh, After being introduced to him, we're told that he occasionally plays the fiddle with the Jewish orchestra, uh, led by a man named Mo- Moses Shekes. I take it the names are going to be Im- important for understanding some of the um, content of the play. And there's a red-bearded Jew who plays the flute named Rothschild. Here we're told that um, this confounded Jew, as it says, uh, plays. he contrives to play even the merriest tunes sadly, which... Um, uh, immediately following that statement, we're told that for no other reason, for no obvious reason, sorry, Yaakov little by little begins to conceive a, a general hatred of Jews. So although Chekhov explicitly doesn't offer the transition, I suspect that note might be causal um, about the cheerful play, playing everything with a note of melancholy. In any case, we we move on from there to his account of um, his life, which he does very much in terms of losses, losses, what's cost him, and even things that, good things that didn't happen to him are sort of accounted as losses. Um, in the midst of this accounting, we're told um, that he makes coffins for men all to his own size. All the men in his village are his size. The women are made to order, and he doesn't really like making children's coffins. It's sort of it's such a trifling thing. Um Shortly after that, we learn his wife dies, goes to hospital. A doctor is not really very helpful, not very interested in being helpful, and she dies, although she seems to look sort of happy at death. And before she dies, she says to him, do you remember, you know, um, years and years ago, God gave us a little golden-haired child, and we used to go and sit by the water under a willow with the child. And oddly, Yaakov can't remember this at all. Um, and she dies, he goes for a walk and finds himself by a pond with this ancient, I take it to be a weeping willow, not just any willow. And then suddenly it all comes back to him that they, they did have this child and that she, his wife used to sit under the tree with this child. And he starts reflecting on the changes of the place, which look much less lively than they used to. Um, he's approached shortly after that by uh, Rothschild. So that flute player comes back in and says, Moses is sort of summoning him to come and play with the orchestra. He refuses. Turns out he's getting quite ill. He realizes he's going to die. 
Um, and bef- before doing so, he starts to play the viol- his violin, and he plays this ex- incredibly beautiful, moving music. Rothschild comes to his house again, hears this music, is very moved by it, and pleads again, saying, you know, Moses is summoning you to come and play with the orchestra. But Yakov can't go at this time. It sort of seems like he knows he's going to die and thinks he's not capable of it. When he's sort of read, he gets a sermon, a sort of, as he's dying, a sermon, and um, the religious leader asks him, you know, do you repent of anything? We're not told he speaks, but he does recall his bad treatment of his wife and Rothschild, which we can get to the details of, but he hasn't been very nice to Rothschild. Um, uh, and then he bequeaths his violin to Rothschild, and then he, he dies. Thereafter, we're told that Rothschild play, plays um, music with the same intensity he heard Yakov playing it before he died. And it's so moving uh, in its painfulness that everybody delights in it, which I take to be a paradoxical sort of statement. And then the story ends. So here's my question. What's the significance of the fact that um, Yakov makes all the men's coffins to his own size, um, but makes the women's to measure and really can't be bothered with the children's at all. Why does Chekhov include that detail? Well, it's easier for me to see the reason in the case of the children than it is in the, the reason in the case of the men. Um, I have a guess about the men. But I took the children to be something like um, an avoidance of the thought or the memory of his daughter's death. Right. In other words, he doesn't want to um, have to measure either a living child who's about to die or the corpse of a child, uh, lest he be reminded of the daughter that he's lost and has even forgotten at this point. Um, so I took it as a kind of evasion. As for the, the men, um, it looks like he measures gentlemen and women. Um, but does not measure peasants and townsmen. And uh, the latter is fine because uh, he's uh, bigger, both taller and broader than anybody in the town. So I took that, and this is, this is just a guess, I took that to mean that he's uh, either a representative or maybe even more a paragon of his type, right? So there's something about him that is the best um, or the greatest among the peasants and townsmen. I mean, really, like, the biggest thing I wanted to add to the conversation was, like, a good fiddler on the roof joke. Um, <laughs> but I've been, working, I've been working on it for a while now, and I got nothing. So, listeners, uh, feel free to tweet your fiddler on the roof joke to at Combat Classics. Um, <laughs> as, to, as to the answer to your question, Lise, like, this, you know, I'm hoping you have a, a Cleopatra deep cut at some point. Um, because this story was very difficult for me to understand because I feel like Yakov is to me very kind of mysterious, you know, if he, if he is just like a mean old man who kind of treated his wife poorly, then like, why, why are we talking about him? But he must not be, there has to be kind of greater depths there. And so there's something in, the music and the giving of the violin to Rothschild, there's something in the idea of him as a coffin maker that makes him more compelling as the main character of the story. But I'm still trying to figure out why. 
Okay, so let's go back to the beginning because short story like this, a great writer like like Chekhov doesn't include any details that aren't meaningful. You just don't have enough time for that kind of flab, let alone the fact that it's a sign of not being as great as he is. So um, I right at the very opening, that detail about um, <clears throat> Rothschild, this flute player who arouses hatred, um, Chekhov says as though there's no connection, um, just arouses hatred in uh, Yakov. But I take it that the hatred is in fact due to the fact that um, the flute player Rothschild um, contrives or to play even the merriest tunes sadly. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some of the details about their their features as well. So we're told he's red he's a red bearded Jew, but here's the part that interests interests me. He's a red-bearded Jew with a network of red and blue veins on his face who bore the name of a famous rich man, Rothschild. So there's a kind of transparency to the skin where you can actually see blood vessels, right? the thing, the stuff of life working um, clearly in his face. Right? Um, by contrast, Yakov, we're told, is, has the nickname Bronze. And I take it to be is, is I guess the skin is bronze but more symbolically I think he's he's it's like he's cauterized his psyche his soul he's made himself bronze to pain or at least that's the effort hence the annoyance at the Jew who turns even the merriest thing into pain right so Roth, uh, rather Yaakov is not transparent to himself the way Rothschild is and I connected that to um his anger at Rothschild's turning even the um, most enjoyable song into a sad song or most pleasant song into a sad song, because it looks to me like, initially at least, for Yaakov, the only escape he has uh, from his general judgment that life is composed of losses is with uh, his occasional plucking of his violin. It's not clear that he actually plays music on it. He just likes to hear the sound of it in the dark. Right, and so there's some kind of relief he's getting from the music that he believes is undermined by uh, the way Rothschild plays music. I think that's right. So is this is this something like Yakov wants to be the kind of emo kid in town, but then there's this other emo kid who's as emo as he is, and he's upset that he doesn't have that kind of soul ability anymore. Yeah, I, I think. Like, we're, oh. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Say, <laughs> when you were about to save me, I was going to say, you know, Jeff and I are academics. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> But, oh. but Jeff came in and he had a he had Well, I, I have a teenage <laughs> son, so I actually know what emo is, I think. And I was going to say that, uh, that bronze is not emo, right? He, uh, he's not in touch with his emotions and he doesn't enjoy uh, being in touch with his emotions, right? That's, that's what I thought you were driving at least, right? I, I, I think I'll just work around the emo reference unless you tell me who that is, but I think I gotcha. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Just, just dark, just dark and broody. You know, that's just that. That's kind of what, what that, I'm going that for. That sounds right. Or Eeyore. I could do Eeyore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like Yakov yeah. wants to be the Eeyore. Yeah. But, but Jeff, you're saying that that's not the case. You're saying that Yakov isn't even aware of his, to use the Greek term, Eeyoreness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's not that's not what upsets him about Rothschild. Yeah, I was trying to put together Lisa's suggestion about what it means to have the nickname bronze, right? That he's somehow uh, metallic or reflective or uh, not transparent with the transparency of Rothschild. Put those things together with um, what seems like they're different approaches to music at the beginning of the story. 
Right. So so uh, let's fold in um, or remind ourselves of Jeff's other earlier comment. Uh, I do take the fact that he, he measures the his own um, he measures the coffins of men uh, for the reasons Jeff said. But I take it also that's meant to be contrasted with the fact that he or 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 I should say he just assumes the men are his size with the fact that he doesn't want to make children's coffins. He understands that as an accounting issue. It's a trifle. I don't make a lot of money. <laughs> I take it that that's not the real reason. So he has some, he's semi-conscious of, of um, some pain. I take it to be the loss of the child at the very least, but not fully conscious of it and doesn't really want to know about it. He does not want to face that. Hence uh, the irritation with the flute player. And hence he doesn't even, he doesn't even, as it's presented to us in the story, make the connection that we've made that the reason he's irritated with Rothschild is because he turns even merry music into something sad. He doesn't do that. He just thinks, well, I just hate Jews. I mean, he's anti-Semite. Right. Um, but that's the claim. And the women's coffins are all particular. So he does measure them. Uh, but I take it that's a sign of repression to use a more modern term. He's repressing the pain of that child's death. And yet, as Jeff also points out, the violin represents the child in some way. So when he worries about losses, particularly at night, he sort of plucks it. And then very oddly, at least in my translation, when he starts to, when he realizes he's going to die, he actually refers to the violin as an orphan. He's worried that it'll be an orphan. Right? Um, Yeah. So let me add one more detail. I take it the violin is a bit like, uh, or it's analogous to a little coffin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And a shape being built out of wood. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There is a, a mysterious detail at the end where um, the, the townsfolk wonder how Rothschild has come by such a nice violin. And, uh, um, of course, it's because the townsfolk don't know the arrangement that Yaakov has made. But it led me to wonder, how was it that Yaakov had come by such a nice violin? And it seemed to me at least possible that he had made it, right? In other words, he's such a good uh, woodworker that just as he makes excellent coffins, he could also make a violin. And that that, uh, supports the comparison. Okay, so let's throw in some names here. Uh, I take it, you know, one can overlook a name like Moses, right? Um, Yaakov is the Russian version of Jacob. Um, And Martha, the Martha that shows up in the Bible, is the sister of Lazarus, who's resurrected by Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. So um, let's try this out as a a working hypothesis. Uh, There's some confrontation. Chekhov is giving us some confrontation between Judaism, very obviously. I mean, the anti-Semitism, it's hard to miss that. Um, One could just take it as being anti-Semitic, but um, not Chekhov, but that he's exploring that. But I take it to be deeper than that, um, that he's contrasting two um, moral worldviews. And I, I take it to be this, that the, the Moses and particularly Rothschild, who turns every bit of music, even the merriest, into something sad, is reminiscent of the way in which at the end of the story we're told, sort of oddly, that... Um, Everybody loves the way in which Rothschild can later play the violin, that it's very painful, but they delight in it. That's an odd, it's a, it's a complex emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Jews seem to have that as they're presented here. That is, they go to a wedding, they play merry music, but threaded through the merry music is suffering, is pain, that these things 
are always or typically interwoven in life. That's what it is to be alive. Mm-hmm. Whereas bronze has this purified accounting of like the, there are losses and there are be- and I guess there are benefits. Although all we ever see are losses, the benefit is like less loss. Um, and he doesn't he doesn't want to have that intermingling of pleasure and pain or happiness and sadness, joy and sorrow. It's got to be sort of pure. Mm-hmm. But that ends up meaning that 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 he doesn't really live all uh, even as like I said before, even missed opportunities are losses. Everything is just a loss. Mm-hmm. Hence, Martha, when she dies, is actually pleased because life is just lo- losses basically and and uh Yakov has that that sentiment as well. That's what it is to be bronze yeah that that's interesting that helps me see a connection that I was puzzling about a little bit um It seems like Yakov's calculation of profit and loss is entirely a calculation composed of imaginary terms, if I can put it that way, right so a loss for him is some good that could have happened but didn't, and a profit for him is some evil that could have happened but didn't uh in part or largely because you're dead and so no other evils can happen to you um and that it, it just seemed odd to me that um you know that one would have a calculus of profit and loss uh, all of whose terms were imaginary events but your remark about uh, the desire for purity the desire for unmixed experiences that pleasure be unmixed and maybe that pain be unmixed and therefore uh concealed or forgotten about uh, might go together really well with this idea that he chiefly orients himself by imaginary possibilities. That's right. Well, he comes right out and says this weird line. It's this second to last page in my translation. Um, or at least Chekhov says it, but it, it's, it's reflect, supposed to reflect Yakov's kind of inner thoughts. Uh, a man's life meant loss, death meant gain. This reflection was, of course, a just one but yet it was bitter and mortifying. Why was the order of the world so strange that life, which is given a man only once, passes away without any, without benefit? And so it, like, how, what gets you, I'm kind of restating what Jeff just said, but like, what gets you to that point? What gets you to that point where death is gain and life is loss? You know, I mean, he's, he's coming to this realization right after watching his wife die. It's after he's realized that, you know, he, or he remembers that he had a daughter and that she died, um, you know, he's tallied up his profit and loss for the year, um, you know, in actual like monetary terms, but he's also examining it from the existential terms. But like, what, what do we think are the kind of prime drivers of why he's come to this conclusion? Yeah, Brian, am I right to remember, or am I remembering correctly, that the odd thing is in this accounting of life of cost and benefits, or profits and losses. In fact, he, there are no profits positively defined. A, I think, as, as Jeff said, a, a profit is just less loss, right? That we, hence, death is good because you've minimized your losses, right? Uh, food doesn't cost that much, etc. And I, I take it to your larger question, Brian, that this is Chekhov saying something about um, the, the Christian approach to life, at least as he's presenting it here demands a kind of purity that doesn't correspond to human life. And so, yeah. So, well, I, was, I was just going to agree with that, right? A certain severe interpretation of Christianity that might be very faithful to certain parts of the Bible would be to say that um, 
everything in this life is somehow fallen or mixed, and only in the next life is there uh, uh, pure good available to human beings, right? And so that would make death a positive gain, uh, as Marfa seems to think, and uh, it would make life nothing but uh, a series of losses. Yeah, or life, with life is the possibility of sin, but the guarantee of reward is not there in life. You know, there there is no guaranteed upside. There is a guarantee uh, of sin. There is a guarantee of loss, um, if those two things are synonymous in that kind of thought structure. But there's no guarantee of profit. There's no guarantee of gain. There's no guarantee of happiness until death. And Lisa, I was taking you to be implying that Judaism was somehow more this worldly than that reading of Christianity. Is that what you were thinking? Exactly. The reference to Moses and um, um, I think emphasizes that fact, but the mixing of weddings and sad music in weddings, yes, that there's no investment in, well, no devaluation of the mixed character of human life, and it's not very clear that there's a promise of anything better after death, right? So life is just a complicated thing. Yeah, and hence it's a. I, I didn't include this detail in the summary, but we could talk about it now. Um, when Yaakov's wife dies, that's when Rothschild first comes to him and says, "Moses is calling you to come and play at a wedding." And one might think, "Well, that's weird, right? The guy's wife just died." But I think Chekhov's suggestion is that's the response, right? People die, and then you have to you pick up and you bring some of that pain to the wedding, which is a joyful experience. But again, it's there's a complexity there that Yaakov um, can't, is unwilling to adjust to or acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of train of thought, like this, this makes some sense to me as far as like a religious allegory and, you know, kind of especially how, what his relationship is with Marfa, right? Um, like he's he's not a good dude to her um and you know religion doesn't necessarily require you to be a good dude um you know to your wife so like and it was it it was this was kind of i think where i kind of was in that mode of why are we talking about this guy Mm -hmm. you know why are we why are we writing a story about this guy who you know admits i'm trying to find the 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 paragraph um where he's looking back at how he treated her. Um, oh, where is it? Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, this is on page six on mine. Uh, let's see. The fifty, the 52 years they had lived in the same hut had dragged on a long, long time, but it had somehow happened that in all that time he had never once thought of her, had paid no attention to her as though she'd been a cat or a dog. And yet every day she had lighted the stove, had cooked and baked, had gone for water, had chopped the wood, had slept with him in the same bed. And when he came home drunk from the wedding, always reverently hung his fiddle on the wall and put him to bed. And all this in silence with a timid, anxious expression. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of them. And then I know there's another uh, couple lines in here about how he never bought her a kerchief. That's right. There's an earlier passage, and I, I wanted to read the conclusion of the earlier passage because um, it, it, was, it was something I had a question about. Um, he lists things uh, along the lines of what Brian mentioned, including um, never having thought to buy her a kerchief or bring her back some sweets from a wedding. Um, and his conclusion of this line of thinking is, and now he realized why her face was so strange and joyous. This is when she's uh, thinking about her upcoming death. 
uh, and he was horrified. And it looks like the the horror doesn't last. It looks like it's a momentary uh, horror for him. Um, But I was wondering what we made of that uh, reaction of horror. Does he think, is he seeing into um, his religious belief then? Or is he seeing into something, maybe a a more secular version of the same thing, namely that uh, has he had the thought that he might himself be the cause of his life being composed only of losses. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, the the charitable reading of Yaakov in this moment where he feels horrible, uh, or in my translation, he was overcome with dread, would that be, you know, would be that he finally had a humanistic impulse and was like, I've been a terrible person. Um, the The not so generous would be, you know, now he's alone and has no one to fetch his water or you know, chop his wood, uh, or sleep in his bed. And I'm not sure, you know, exactly where to land. I mean, you can point to him giving away the violin to someone that he hates and hope that that's a quasi happy ending. I was actually going to volunteer myself to, uh, do the summary and I was going to just be like, well, before we get into it too deeply, just, it's a rousing musical, uh, Rothschild's violin. (laughs) Yeah, fiddler on the roof again, Punch, huh? <laughs> fiddler on the roof, punchy da- dance numbers throughout. Like Chekhov just does such a good job of describing all the dance numbers. Uh, I think you're you're missing the point of the thing, which is that it's all very serious, but we're supposed to somehow take pleasure in this. But you're mm-hmm. trying to. <laughs> well, that's you know, and that that's a good point. You know, like it is. You know, it's it's very dark and depressing, and maybe maybe it. I mean, I guess the question is like, you know, we still got some time left, so we don't need to jump to the end right now. But I would like to address at some point, like, is it a quasi happy ending? You know, do, is, is giving Rothschild that violin, uh, a signal that Yakov has some kind of degree of humanity reclaimed? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'll just say my shorter answer to that is, is I don't think we see, you know, a happy ending in, in that, but I do think we get a teaching. I don't, I mean, um, I don't simply want to say it's a religious allegory because uh, I don't think Chekhov would limit himself in that way. So I think we could expand it to say more broadly, it's it's a question of how you live your life. His horror that he sees upon his um, when he sees his wife looking strangely happy, I think it's I think it's too well. I, th- I don't think it's uh, primarily or at all because he's on his own. Although that wouldn't be an unreasonable thing to be scared of but I think it's the two former things that you outlined that he has he has caused this woman and is causing himself to have a horrible life and it's it's horrible this is again back to the paradox of the bronze it's horrible because he's afraid of pain so that's right he's made it most painful by trying to avoid pain uh, because pain is woven through all of an adult life and, and maybe maybe all of life simply. So he, by um, limiting himself, he's made happiness impossible, right? So she's afraid of, his wife is afraid of him, has this miserable life. It looked like they, there was a time when they had a, 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 a possibility of a future with this child and sitting under the tree and there were apparently lots of geese and boats on the water and life looked like it was thriving. 
He notes now the water's still, sailboats aren't sailing it, there are even less geese. I'd like to talk about the geese a little bit because they're told that they sort of all come flying at him. I take it they're memories or something, but Mm -hmm. he has what looks like an aha moment or I could say almost a religious moment where that tree sort of, the the memory that brings back strike him, but he doesn't he doesn't reform as a result. He doesn't think, i got to start living differently. He can't. He's too cauterized. He's too bronzed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's a critique of a certain way of living, right? this, this demand not to feel pain. Uh, right. That's for it, everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, you've helped me make another connection here. So it's not just that he is insensible to his wife's desires or something like that. Like he hadn't thought... Uh, perhaps previously that she would have appreciated a headscarf or appreciated some sweets and, you know, hardened himself against that thought. Uh, It's rather that, um, does this seem right? It's rather that if he did something like that for her uh, and got pleasure from it, right? In other words, enjoyed her uh, reaction to a gift, he would then be more vulnerable to the um, necessary pain that would eventually accompany that, namely her death, right? And so he's preemptively keeping himself pure, right? Yeah. By, by, uh, by refusing to engage with her. And he realizes that that has been his life. Right. In other words, to put it sort of more colloquially and crudely, what goes up must come down, mm-hmm. right? So don't go up to the peaks of happiness because that's, that's a bad thing to do. But again, back to Brian's query earlier on another paradox of the whole thing is uh it's not like he was indifferent to his child's death right or to his wife the repression i think is is an indication that that deeply hurt him mm-hmm. but he didn't deal with it in the right in a way that was um conducive to a a good life a, ha- a life that had happiness in it which doesn't mean a, a life that's purely happy which no nobody has of course right and I think that's also belied by the fact, like, he doesn't have any friends, right? He's been in this village for, you know, they've lived together for 52 years. You know, how long he was in the village beforehand, not really sure. Um, you know, he says there's old people that refuse to die. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there's no, he doesn't converse with anyone that comes to watch wash Marfa's body. He has the crony uh, who's the, you know, grave digger. Um, but like he doesn't have any relationships, mm-hmm. right? So he's kind of cut himself off from the world, which, you know, I agree, at least we don't want to limit ourselves to, you know, religious allegory, but you know, there's certainly another theme in Christianity, which is like rejecting the world, right? That don't be, don't be tainted by the world. And so, you know, a way to do that would be to not interact with people, you know, except when they're, di- when they're dead, um, which unfortunately reinforces the allegory a little bit, um, except with, you know, this Jewish band at weddings, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the limit of his human interaction. He's either dealing with grieving people, dead people, or a band, uh, that's Jewish that plays weddings. Mm-hmm. And that's the extent of your life. And that seems like exactly, you know, if you wanted to repress as much as possible, then that was that's a that's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's another detail that I wanted to mention, and I wanted to see if we can fold it into the account that we're giving. Um, I think on two or three occasions we're told that um, Yaakov likes to threaten people with his fists, 
but he never hits them, right? That's once said about uh, how he treats his wife. Uh, and that's also how, uh, when he has one of his interactions with Rothschild, uh, uh, Rothschild is frightened away and eventually gets bitten by a dog, right? So Rothschild is hurt, but not directly by Yaakov. Um, how are we inclined to explain that? Is that part of the religious side? In other words, we're being shown something about the kind of Christianity that's informing Yaakov's life? Or is it another dimension of his aversion to pain that, strangely enough, one way not to engage with people is even not to hit them? Interesting question. But to, but to threaten them somehow, but to have the threat of violence, right. you know, in, in the forefront. At a, at a distance. carry it out. Yeah. 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 yeah, there's an interesting dynamic there. I'm wondering, like... <clears throat> I guess I'm going to have to fall back on, you know, keeping the world out as much as you can, mm -hmm. right? Um, that even the, the you know, few interactions that you have, um, or maybe even, you know, we're, we're shown in those two cases, like, what end up being his two closest relations, right? Mm -hmm. You know, his wife, and then Rothschild, who he, you know, bequeaths the violins here. So the, the two violent interactions that he has specifically, and that are detailed, you know, in the work, are you know, also the two people that he has the closest quote unquote emotional connection mm -hmm. to. So, I, you know, what is that? What is, I guess reframing the question is like, what does it mean to kind of, is it, or I guess, you know, is it a reflection that he's afraid of the world that he has to put up a violent front uh, to the people that are trying to get close to him? It seems entirely possible and consistent with what we've done. Let's expand it a little bit. The threat is always imminent and never actual. So I think that thrusts um, punishment primarily into a, an afterlife. It might be consistent with that. And part of the reason I'm take, taking it that far is because um, this might sound a little opaque to start off with, but I'd like to connect Jeff's observation with the odd trip to the hospital Mm -hmm. where they don't get the they don't get the doctor they get the doctor's assistant <laughs> but that's okay because the doctor's assistant although drunk um and and just the assistant is supposed to be better with knowledge or technical details or something like this um um but then as it turns out he's very callous he's uh -huh. sort of he's like Martha's old um so just get over it. She's going to die. And Yaakov makes some attempts to say, no, well, at least cup, do something, right? Uh, um, at least try. And he has an interesting line. He says, um, he says, Yaakov, to this um, assistant, in response to there's a, well, the assistant says, well, well, she's lived a long time. There, um, there must come an end to everything. And Yaakov says, you're certainly right, Your Honor. And he smiles out of politeness and he says, we thank you sincerely for your kindness, but allow me to suggest to you that even an insect dislikes to die. And again, I take it to be a, a crit criticism of the notion that somehow uh, human life or life simply in this world is just beneath contempt. It's contemptible. Uh, it's really not important. So once this woman hits this age, even if she had another 10 years to go, who cares, right? It doesn't amount to anything much anyway. Um, so that also, I think, looks, well, devalues life, but perhaps with some view to an afterlife. I was even mm -hmm. wondering whether or not the suggestion is that the assistant is some sort of um, Christian authority stand-in. 
Yeah, I, I even took it as the doctor being being God and this being Christ. Uh, yes, me too. And, you know, that the, that the powders are ineffectual, but there's something that you do while you're waiting to die to make yourself feel better about your situation. That seemed like a kind of recommendation that, that somebody might, uh, or accusation that somebody might levy against Christianity, right? right? That it discourages you from taking effective action and instead tells you to take ineffective means. Right. That's how I was thinking of it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we cycle back to Brian's earlier query about the ending, I don't think I don't think I was waiting for Yakov to sort of turn it around, but he doesn't. Uh, but it's Chekhov, and so that <laughs> I started to see a pattern. <laughs> On the other hand, um, there's something redeeming about it insofar as um, Rothschild hearing Yakov playing when he finally that bronze breaks and he's just crying playing that violin before he's about to die and then he bequeaths it to Rothschild Rothschild's playing he gives up the flute he just plays the violin is now better than it's ever been Mm -hmm. so somehow he is enriched by hearing Yakov break open as he does at least for this minute this moment Um, Mm -hmm. and then he brings something of that even deeper complexity of the, the the bittersweetness of the beautiful human emotion um, of life, um, the sadness and joy of life being interwoven. He brings that to the world. Mm-hmm. So I guess we could wonder what what is deepening, what is more beautiful about this crack in Yakov that Rothschild can then make can can bring to life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the there's some like Kafka quote which is music is the axe to our frozen soul, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which is probably not really a quote from Kafka. Somebody just attributed it to him because it doesn't actually sound very Kafkaesque. Mm-hmm. Um, but you <laughs> know, there emo, is something. Emo it. <laughs> it's it's super emo. Uh, <laughs> there, you know, there seems to be something to that when you can't express it in, you know, an emotion or a thought and kind of linguistic terms you know you turn you turn art and especially music to to try to channel it to try to communicate it um so it's 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 a nice kind of it's a tidy ending it's a touching ending but i don't know if it gives us the full resolution of what we need to know about Yakov. Mm-hmm. Yakov well, uh, yeah. there, there's a detail in here that puzzles me a little bit, and I think it might just be an artifact of my translation. So I wouldn't mind hearing other people's last paragraphs. Um, and also, I think I, I suggest this as a preliminary to trying to um, continue with Lisa's question because. Um, it makes a difference to me which way we're supposed to read this ending um, as to how we uh, will try to answer the question. But uh, what I have is that um, Rothschild tries to reproduce what Yaakov played in that one instance where his bronze cracks. Do you all have that in the last paragraph, with the implication being that he never quite uh, rises to the level of Yaakov's final performance? So, so mine seems to say something like, yes, he does try to repeat what, you know, the, the specific line is, as plaintive sounds flow now from his bow, as came once from his flute. But when he tries to repeat what Yakov played sitting in the doorway, the effect is something so sad and sorrowful that his audience weep, and he himself rolls his eyes and articulates, Vach. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems to say that 
it's not exactly the way that Yakov played it, but it is a way that plays some kind of depth of human emotion that the audience responds to profoundly. So, Go ahead. If I tie that observation to the question of why uh, the audience is so moved or what Yakov, if anything, does to Rothschild, how about if we try this? So Yakov, we developed, I think, with some plausibility, the, the notion that Yakov separates things into extremes, which in fact can't be done, but he, but he goes pretty far in that direction, which is to say that the, the pain he suffers because it's less intermingled with joy than, say, it is with the, with the Jews, the Jewish orchestra, Moses, etc., it becomes extremely acute. It's not mm-hmm. something I think anyone really says, yes to, I want that life, and it looks like there's a criticism of it. But nevertheless, it's intensified, maybe with that, intensified to a point that maybe Rothschild could never get to, which is why he might have a better life. But it, when he sees Yakov breaking and playing it's like all that pain that was built up over all these years that was repressed suddenly bursts forth and he's not going to have precisely that because he doesn't have the same repression mm-hmm. um, but he can fold something in of that into his more complex human experience that does allow for joy and hence produces this bittersweet result in the music that that uh, people say is so sad but they delight in it that mm-hmm. we take a delight in that complexity. So this is a restatement, I think, of what you just said from the uh, the religious allegorical side. Um, could the thought be something like um, the move from a certain vision of Christianity to a certain vision, say, associated with Judaism, uh, is involves a very powerful release of emotion, and it's um, stronger than what's intrinsic to that strain of Judaism on its own. Uh, the the um, the strain of Judaism can um, reproduce and control some part of what was released, but it doesn't have the the strength that it had in the in the transition from uh, the Christian orientation to the to the uh, uh, Hebrew orientation. Um, yeah. So this this might be a kind of um, it's like the the personal details cast this religious shadow, right, which is less substantial than the personal details, but still there. And that might be the the shadow account of what's happening here. Yeah, that seems right. Well, I think that's uh, probably a good time to wrap it up. Old Chekhov. Guy's good. Um, <laughs> I was really surprised so. that he ended up the uh, a navigator on the Enterprise. You know, I never would have... <laughs> <laughs> You never know. You never know. You know when when he, when he's youthful and vibrant and doesn't have this you know Yakov like uh, destitution. You know, you can take you can take a positive turn. Uh, cool. Uh, well, we've got uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein coming up next. Um, so be on the lookout for that. That'll be coming out in January. Um, so this will probably come out right around uh, Christmas. So happy holidays to all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, thanks, Lise. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays to everybody. Yeah.